The contemporary resort was crowded with reporters, only a few short steps to the entrance of Magic Kingdom. From all over the country, news people had traveled to Central Florida ready for whatever the future held. It was the summer of 1975, four years after Magic Kingdom opened, bringing Disney to Orlando. It was a big question that had been floating around Florida for the last couple of months. What was next? Walt Disney World had turned out to be a huge success, bringing folks from around the world to our state. Were things about to expand? And if so, how? It was clear now what the announcement was going to be. Epcot was coming to Orlando. Card Walker, then president of the Walt Disney Company, sat before the journalists and promised that Epcot was soon to become the new incredible innovation in theme parks. Card said the following, quote, The first phase has been the recreational community, the Magic Kingdom, the hotels and lakes and campground, which has played host to more than 40 million in less than four years, end quote. But Epcot, as Walker describes it, was something new, something looking to the future. Quote, now we are launching the second phase of Walt's ideas, the scientific industrial communication world cooperation aspect of Epcot, end quote. Epcot, which is the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, had been floating around the Disney conversations for over a decade now, first introduced by Walt Disney himself years earlier. Now, they were finally bringing Epcot to life. Kind of. There's a key word in the title of Epcot that clearly did not survive to its opening, community. I've been to Epcot countless times in my life. It's easily my most visited park in Disney. And as much as I love Epcot, it's hard to exactly call it a community. Back in the 70s, when the park was first being announced, the reporters noticed the problem in the title as well. The original concept of Epcot, the one that Walt dreamed of and discussed for years, was far from what was being described here. The original Epcot was actually going to be a city. This Epcot was more oriented toward education. Education about nature, about technology, about the cultures of the world at large. The executives at this meeting made their feelings very, very clear. They said that this was always the plan. John Hench, a designer, artist, and friend of Walt Disney, who helped design much of Disney's parks, said the following at the time, quote, I'd say we are doing exactly what we talked about when Walt was alive. Walt introduced ideas to us as, you might say, the title in scene one. He knew better than to drop the big scene into people's minds at the beginning. We're engaged in scene two now, end quote. I can't speak to what John Henge means in that statement, but it is intensely vague and also not completely true. Anyone can look back at what Walt had said back in the 60s, things he had said on film, and see that while this version of Epcot is certainly one part of what Walt had originally described, Walt was not talking about a theme park. Part of Walt's original plan did include a variation of Epcot today, with a whole section dedicated to an industrial showcase, but I disagree with the premise that this was always what Walt Disney had in mind, especially knowing what he did want. He talked about it at length. In the Orlando Land magazine, a quote from the time details what may have been happening behind the scenes, why Epcot had changed so drastically. An unnamed Disney executive said, quote, You can't experiment with people's lives. You can make a test city, but you can't gamble with years of a family's life. End quote. 
It's an ominous quotation, to be certain, and it functions as an explanation as to why executives were leaning hard into the idea that they were not, in fact, building a city. But Walt Disney wanted to build a city, and when he died, those plans were still in place. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the season seven finale, and to end the summer season right, I want to tell you about the origins of Epcot and the Magic Kingdom, the city Walt dreamed of, how it came to be and fell apart, and the echoes of his dream that still exist in Orlando today. The 50th anniversary of Magic Kingdom's opening is this October, so now is the perfect time to discuss how it came to be and how it has changed through the years. This week's episode was constructed with massive assistance from friend of the show, Melissa Procco at the Orange County Regional History Center. Melissa has been a massive help to the show since we first worked together almost two years ago, and this episode was no different. She collected and gathered research from the History Center's records, including archives from the Orlando Land Magazine, reports in their files, and even old books from the time that were produced by Walt Disney Productions. Nearly all of the research for this episode was done in conjunction with Melissa, who gathered this research. If you are in Orlando, there is no better museum experience than the beautiful halls of the History Center and no better way to learn about my hometown. I just wanted to thank Melissa and give her her credit right now because seriously, this episode could not have existed without all of the work that Melissa did for us. So thank you to her and thank you to the History Center. Before we get into the episode proper, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of Wait 5 Minutes is sponsored by A Trombo Creative. A Trombo Creative is owned and operated by my dear friend of over a decade, Annie. Annie has been designing and costuming professionally for six years and even did costumes for yours truly throughout my years in theater. Through close collaboration, cohesive design, and hands-on fittings, together you and Annie can create the perfect costume for your production, cosplay, special event, or photo shoot. She turns your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. You can check out more of her work on Instagram at atrombo.creative, and you can book your appointment at her website, atrombocreative.com. There are links to both of those in the description of this episode. Thank you to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. All right, on with the show. July 18th, 1955, Disneyland opens in Anaheim, California, a realization of an idea that Walt Disney had carried in his heart his whole life. Born in Chicago in 1901, Walt Disney grew from being a local artist to founding his own studio to national fame before he was 30. Mickey Mouse, who first appeared in a short called Steamboat Willie, was such a success that he soon became a much-talked-about name in the field of animation. Walt pushed himself and his team further and further until in 1938 they created the first ever full-length animated film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. It's noted that Disney was a passionate believer in improving the quality of the art he was creating. Those close to him would say that this was a quality he carried throughout his life, a persistent interest in improving, in pushing toward the next big thing. Disneyland was, perhaps, the first real time that Disney's interest in pushing to the next big thing was realized in such a physical way. 
Education and entertainment were at the forefront of his interest, and he wanted to bring a park to life that appealed to everyone in the family and, of course, featured characters that he and his team had brought to life. It was a rocky start, however, with crowds overwhelming an underprepared staff and limited concessions leaving visitors low on snacks and drinks. They eventually worked their way through the troubles and settled in to become an institution of Southern California to this very day. Naturally, once Disneyland was working and flowing without any problems, their eyes were set to the future. So too were the eyes of the County Commission of Orange County, Florida. This part of Florida was a vibrant community, albeit a smaller one, more angled toward agriculture than anything else. Orange groves and cattle still dominate a large portion of our landscape here in Central Florida, but before the first spade of Walt Disney World was dug, farming ruled this land. There were big questions about how to promote Orlando to a broader audience. Tourism was clearly valuable to other towns in the state, so why not Orlando? But how could you convince people to come down and pay us a visit? There were plenty of golf courses and lakes to boat and fish on, but it wasn't enough. When big ideas did come through, according to Orlando Land Magazine, the response was essentially the same every single time. Quote, There are many retirees among our constituents. There are people with cattle ranches and groves. They don't want to change. They don't want to pay higher taxes. End quote. Without realizing it, at that time, change was literally coming in from above. Walt Disney did a survey of those who visited Disneyland, where they came from, and he soon discovered that most people were from west of the Mississippi. Those of us living on the East Coast were less likely to make the long trip to California, so Disney was missing out on a majority of the population in the United States and some of the biggest city centers. Ever the businessman, Walt knew that an Eastern variation of Disneyland was the obvious next step. A brief side note. In documents from the era preserved in the History Center, it is noted that the Disney Corporation badly wanted to ensure that nobody called it Disneyland East. I find that very funny. Disney looked all over the eastern seaboard from Niagara Falls to Washington, D.C. There were conversations about a riverboat-themed Disney park in St. Louis or a beachside park near West Palm Beach. It's not generally discussed, but Walt Disney actually had a family connection to Florida. Quote, his parents had lived in Paisley before he was born, and he had returned as a youth to visit relatives, end quote. Paisley, in Lake County, was not terribly far from Orlando, and in 1963, Walt hopped on a plane over Greater Orlando and spotted the land that would soon be his. It was actually November 22nd, 1963, the day President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. That was the same day that Walt looked down from his plane and saw Lake Buena Vista and its surrounding lands. Walt Disney acted swiftly and privately. His attorney, a man named Paul Hellowell, was traveling around Orlando making big purchases under false names with false corporation titles. False companies were popped up and run by Disney secretly, dumping their cash into the land they needed for the park. Why lie? Why all the cloak and dagger? Well, if Disney had put his name on it, then the prices would have soared. As long as he kept his name out of the purchases, then it was just some random corporation making the moves, and not Disney. A man named Erlo Bronson was one of the men who sold his land to Disney. Bronson was actually a state legislator for some years in the 40s and 50s, and when Disney came knocking in the 60s, he sold his land quick, and he sold it cheap. Lots of people were uncertain of all the purchases going on here, but Bronson believed in the future. 
He believed that the land he was selling would bring benefits to Central Florida in the long run. He sold his land for a little over a hundred bucks per acre, which is a little less than a thousand bucks per acre in today's money. Orlando, quite literally, had no idea what was coming. By 1965, everything had clicked into place and it was time for the big announcement. Walt Disney himself and his brother Roy, alongside then-Governor Hayden Burns, arrived to Orlando for the big press conference. At the famous Cherry Plaza Hotel, Governor Burns and the Disney brothers made the big reveal. That project that had been simmering out south of Orlando? Well, it was the new Disney project that the whole world was waiting for. A new park was on its way to Orlando and things would never be the same. Well, Mr. Governor, uh, this has been a wonderful reception that uh, you've given us here. All the faces seem friendly and uh, we feel very much at home. When all of the purchases were done, Disney owned 27,000 acres of Florida land. In a document published by Disney at the time and held in the archive at the History Center, the company lays out exactly what they were hoping to construct within those acres in extreme detail. The first element was, of course, a theme park, quote, similar to Disneyland and representing an initial investment equal to the existing California facility, end quote. From there, they'd add a variety of recreational activities outside of the park, including golf courses and horseback riding. Art in the book details the layout of the locations, and it is still generally close to how it looks today. The main thing that is different is they wanted a monorail to connect across all of these big facilities that they were putting in, and though there are monorails in place today, they are nowhere near as large stretching as the monorail that they were talking about building at the time. They go on to detail construction of a jet port, a project that never came to fruition. That would have been a way for travelers to fly directly to Disney, but Orlando International isn't terribly far from Disney nowadays, so the jet port was maybe a touch too much. You didn't need it. They also detail an entrance complex to allow cars to park, which, again, does actually exist today. They also detail the creation of something called an industrial park, wherein, quote, Disney staff will work with individual companies to create attractive, park-like settings where visitors can look behind the scenes at experimental laboratories and computer centers for major corporations, end quote. That is essentially what Epcot today actually is. But the book does not pull punches about what Epcot was supposed to be, about the community they were actually trying to build. That is the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. I'm just going to read you this quote verbatim. Quote, Designed to serve an initial population of 20,000, Epcot will be a living showcase for the creativity of American industry. In its endless task of depicting urban life 25 years into the future, Epcot will never be completed, but will always be introducing, testing, and demonstrating new ideas and new technologies. End quote. If you ask me, that is an incredibly idealistic plan that is being discussed here. An active, experimental city with 20,000 people. Now, compared to other major cities, that is pretty small. The population of Orlando in 1970 was a little over 300,000. So Disney is talking about less than a tenth of that. But still, 
20,000 people is a lot of people living just a few miles from Magic Kingdom in a Disney-run and owned town. On top of that, it was supposed to be entirely enclosed by a dome, shut out from the world under some sort of barrier. Their visions were expansive and creative, with a lesson they were trying to prove. Quote, the design of Epcot is dedicated to showing how many of the problems of our cities can be solved through proper master planning. End quote. So they're talking about a cultivated, hyper-specific town run by a massive corporation and laid into a unique shape, what they called the radial plan. In a piece of art that details the space from above, Epcot was laid out like a wheel with a core at the center and spokes going out, with a line right down the middle. The center of the circle is the hub or focal point with a massive park around it featuring, quote, schools, churches, and recreational areas, end quote. There would also be a green belt there, some natural parks for people to visit. There would be apartments to serve many citizens in one dense area and suburbs to have more spread out communities. There will be shopping districts and pedestrian areas that would be closed in from the outside and would be apparently climate controlled so the weather could be changed at will. The core of the city would feature a beautiful modern hotel and office buildings for the residents to work in would be scattered throughout the remaining areas of the town. There would even be cultural centers like active theaters and international markets. The now famous people movers that run through Tomorrowland today were supposed to truck folks around the city's elevated tracks. One line in this section of the book really stands out to me. It says the following, quote, In Epcot, the pedestrian will be king. End quote. There's a diagram of the city from a side view showing that there would be a subterranean level below the main part of the city for delivery trucks serving the commercial parts of the city and some below ground parking. The top level was basically just for pedestrians to get by on foot. Those subterranean tunnels bear an uncanny resemblance in concept to the famous tunnels that run beneath Magic Kingdom today. But this was all part of the plan. The next line is written in italics. Quote, Nowhere in Disney World will a signal light ever slow the constant flow of traffic. End quote. I don't mean to quibble, but if you've ever visited Disney by car, you know that that is not the case. Anyway, and now this is the most important part, the thing that I think Disney was most excited about. The suburbs themselves were supposed to function as a sort of testing ground for future domestic technologies. Families that lived in the quote-unquote low-density neighborhood areas aka the suburbs, would be living in homes that would resemble houses 30 years into the future. Quote, Here, major American industries will be invited to install and demonstrate new appliances and technologies which will contribute to the comfort and convenience of future domestic life. End quote. Obviously, this was a business opportunity for Disney, but also could be genuinely a lure for people to want to live in this city. The company even suggests some employees may choose to live in Epcot and work at the Magic Kingdom and commute along the monorail line. In fact, there was a rule that was being considered that you had to have a job if you lived in Epcot. It didn't need to necessarily be at Disney, but you had to have a job. They were even talking about testing out new forms of power, including solar energy and nuclear plants. There was so much being thought about, so many planning mechanisms in place here. This was a project that had thought out everything from the theoretical comfort of its residents to the business opportunities to keep the community thriving, from the tourism element for visitors to travel to, to technologies that could attract residents to want to live within. It was meticulously laid out.
And then Walt Disney died. They didn't really know it at the time, but Walt Disney was nearing the end of his life. He was only in his mid-60s, but he was an avid cigarette smoker. By 1966, Walt was ill, and it was starting to look like Walt may not see his dream fully realized. In November, he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and by December, things were looking dire. He had just turned 65 when, on December 15, 1966, he succumbed to his illness and passed away. According to those close to him at the time, as he worked on the creation of Walt Disney World, he wound up spending most of his time talking, thinking, and planning the details of Epcot as he neared the end of his life. It was something he seemed to be energized about and focused on, and when he was gone, the big question remained, what do we do? A little less than two months after he passed away, Walt Disney made his final appearance advocating for the future of Epcot. It was in a film he had created the previous October, a month and a half before he died, detailing the Epcot plan. It's become a beloved relic for many, a fascinating glimpse into what might have been and kind of the last glimpse that anybody has ever had of Walt. It was the last film he made before he died. Walt is at his most charismatic, enthusiastic, and inspired. He refers to a map where you can visibly see the entire blocked out plot of land that is Disney World. The film details the park, the relevance of it, the economic impact, and perhaps most importantly to Walt, he details his ideas for Epcot. Here's a little bit of that film. But where do we begin? How do we start answering this great challenge? Well, we're convinced we must start with the public need. And the need is not just for curing the old ills of old cities. We think the need is for starting from scratch on virgin land and building a special kind of new community. So that's what Epcot is, an experimental prototype community that will always be in a state of becoming. It will never cease to be a living blueprint of the future where people actually live a life they can't find anywhere else in the world. This film was not actually made for regular consumers like you and me. Rather, it was made for and first shown to a very specific audience, an audience full of Florida state legislators. See, one of the oft-forgotten elements of what Disney was doing down here was that he required lots of governmental certification to complete a lot of the projects that he was working on. They needed to basically create an actual government-recognized city in order to actually accomplish all the things they wanted to. But here's the thing that makes them a little different from a regular city. They wanted to have a regulated and internal municipal system that they could control themselves and also didn't impact the surrounding counties, Orange and Osceola County specifically. This included wastewater and drainage, building codes and land planning, emergency services like fire and medical, and more. The circuit had already approved the creation of a drainage district, but now the state had to approve the creation of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which encapsulated the Magic Kingdom, its nearby hotels, and the hopeful city of tomorrow. The 1967 Florida State Legislature made it official, and Governor Claude Kirk signed the bill. It was official. The Reedy Creek Improvement District came to be, granting Disney control over the municipal services within its land. A system that still exists now, with minor variations. That film, which was also shown to companies that would theoretically invest in Epcot, did its job swimmingly. Walt's dream 
could now come true. There had been some trepidation after Walt died. Orlando Land Magazine reported that Roy, Walt's brother, asked his executives if they should even go ahead with bringing the project to completion, should they even finish the new Magic Kingdom. They unanimously agreed to continue, and the project did not slow down. It did, however, change. Epcot was Walt's dream, and he was its biggest advocate. He had the ideas, the passion, the creativity, the drive to bring this thing to life, but he was gone and his brother, Roy, focused the team on creating the new Magic Kingdom to the best of their ability, with the hotels in place and everything properly planned. As I mentioned, Disneyland's first few weeks were less than stellar. This was take two, and hopefully they could get everything right by opening day. They focused on the park, constructing buildings and laying bricks. They grew shrubs and trees to be replanted within the park and manicured to their exact style. They cleaned up the nearby ecosystems, apparently following anti-pollution laws to such an extreme degree that one member of the Florida Audubon Society was cited as saying, quote, they could have complied with Florida's anti-pollution law by doing a quarter of what they've done, end quote. They planned the heights and patterns of the buildings within Magic Kingdom using Mickey Mouse balloons, raising the balloons on a tether to the exact height that a building would be so that they could create the exact silhouette of the park. This includes the still standing and still beautiful Cinderella Castle. There's an image from the time that shows builders below looking up at a small Mickey balloon tethered at a comically tall height that is the highest point of Cinderella Castle. There's nothing there, just a Mickey balloon way up in the air. It's a very, very funny image. Epcot, after Walt's death, slipped away from the priorities. This park had to be opened within a few years and it needed to be done right. Epcot was a logistical conundrum like no other, focusing on residential spaces, commercial areas, and municipal structures that the artists at Disney couldn't fathom alongside the construction of a massive brand new theme park. It was Walt's big idea, and without him, the company just couldn't see it really working. The radial plan, the Epcot film, and the dozens upon dozens of concept art sat without any further development as the 60s came to an end and Magic Kingdom sat just on the horizon. On October 1st, 1971, Walt Disney World opened, alongside its neighboring hotels, the Polynesian Resort and the Contemporary Resort. In a little less than a month, it will have been 50 years since that day arrived. Since then, three new parks have been added, two water parks, a massive shopping area called Disney Springs, my favorite spot on property, and countless more hotels throughout the land. The Reedy Creek Improvement District still surrounds the entire property, and a beautiful model of the original Epcot design still hides in a dark corner of the People Mover ride in Tomorrowland. Epcot, of course, still bears the same name as that original idea, opening 11 years to the day after Magic Kingdom on October 1st, 1982. Despite what the company said when they made their big announcement about Epcot back in the 70s, the new park bore little resemblance to the town that Walt conceived of. The idea of an international market of sorts translated between the two with the World Showcase still a prominent feature in the park. Epcot certainly has always been focused on modern and futuristic technology, just as the original concept was supposed to as well. But Epcot isn't a city. It never could have been. 
the closest that Disney has ever gotten to fulfilling the idea that Walt had dreamed of all those years ago is the beautiful and unique town called Celebration, just a few miles south of Disney today, but that is a story for another episode. In all the research and writing of this episode, there's one sentence that kind of sticks out to me, and it's not the one you'd think. Quote, The design of Epcot is dedicated to showing how many of the problems of our cities can be solved through proper master planning. End quote. I struggle with this line for a lot of reasons. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that one of the great joys in life is imperfect things. Yes, municipal systems can be inherently troublesome, and if they worked better, that would mean better health and safety for the residents within. I'm not complaining about that sort of thing. What I am saying is, who wants to live in a utopia? Who actually wants to live in a utopia? Like, who wants to be in a perfect bubble of a cultivated community? I don't know about you, but I don't at all. I like the imperfect things in human cities. I like the thumbprints we put on the places we live. I like fading paint and crooked signs. I like old bricks and worn out wood and graffiti and weird decorations that never get taken down. I like that when I used to live in Altamont Springs, they would put up the signs for Red Hot and Boom and then they wouldn't come down for months. I like those things. If it was perfectly manicured and cultivated by a company all the time, that would be terrible. That, that would totally remove the things that make cities and communities and towns so great. Frankly, I've talked about a lot of this within this season. What about the town of Barden that has their own skunk ape? And so they've devoted a lot of their community and culture to celebrating their booger. What about Key West, who in the age of prohibition found a way to survive with the rum runners and speakeasies on people's back porches? What about our beaches that are influenced by nature and supported by the people who live along them? What about our lighthouses? They're relics of days gone by, but they are cared for by the community. They are literally paid for by the community so that they could continue to exist. I don't think Utopia keeps a century-old lighthouse functioning, but real people do. This is what I'm saying. I appreciate the creativity and the ingenuity that Disney wanted to bring in the creation of a town like Epcot, but towns are unique, special things. They are influenced by the people that live within them, and if we let that be turned into a polished, perfect thing, then we lose the character that makes our homes special. If any of you have watched the first season of Mad Men, which is my favorite show, you know that the word utopia means two things. It means a perfect, idealistic place, and it also means no place, a place that cannot exist. Walt's idealism about Epcot, about what it could be, what it could represent, are exciting things. The now retro-futurism of it is certainly attractive, but I wouldn't want to live in that place. Communities are what we make of them. Perhaps it's for the best that Epcot was shelved. It does, however, bring me joy to know that when Walt first saw the land that would be Disney World, he was inspired. So many have come to Florida and fallen in love with the potential. Writers at the time compared what Walt was doing for Orlando to what Henry Plant had done for Tampa and what Henry Flagler did for the East Coast. They drew new people to that area and exploded the population. They kind of made the towns what they look like today. My city, my hometown of Orlando, was drastically changed after Disney came with population surges and new economic opportunities. I love this city with all of my heart, 
all of its quirks and imperfections, all the problems we have yet to solve, all of the fingerprints that the residents of Orlando have left on it over the last century or so. I would rather live in this town, shiny and strange and changing and ready to get better at any opportunity, than the city that Walt dreamed of. In my opinion, I'd rather live in the city of today than an impossible, unknowable city of tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you were here. I'm so glad that you spent this season with me. I'm so grateful for all of you spending your summer with me. It means the world to me. If you haven't listened to this show before, maybe this is your first episode. Maybe Disney was the thing that drew you to this show. Thank you for listening, and thank you for coming. I have written about Disney in the past. I actually kind of did a prequel to this a couple years ago about the Contemporary Resort, which in and of itself has a fascinating history. So go check out that episode or go listen to this entire summer season. I am very proud of all the stories we got to tell. Season 7 of Wait 5 Minutes was brought to you by A Trombo Creative. Turn your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. Go book your appointment at atrombocreative.com. And thank you again to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. This is something that Annie and I had talked about for years, basically, for her to sponsor the show. And it means a lot to me that we actually got to make it happen. I could not have done this season without her support. Go give her some support in return. Thank you to Annie for all of your support. If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website just for you. Go to WFMPod.com for transcripts of current episodes, additional photographs related to the stories, and photos from my trips around the state. It's been a busy couple of months, but I will be updating all of the transcripts from Season 7 over the next couple of weeks. I cannot wait for you to see some of the additional photos and research that I have collected during the last couple of months. Go to WFMPod.com and keep your eye on it. There's going to be some updates very, very soon. You can now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker using a photograph from our friend Laura Nix, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker in the shape of Florida, and a sticker featuring the subtitle About Florida by a Floridian. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. Thank you to Cast and Clay for all of your help this season. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you for this episode to Melissa Procco and the History Center. The Orange County Regional History Center is an amazing location in this town. If you want to learn more about our unique, bizarre history, the History Center is the best place to go. Thank you to Melissa Procco for all of your help. I could not have done this episode without you. And because there's not going to be an epilogue this season, I wanted to give a shout out to all of our guests from season seven. 
This season had such amazing guests, wise, brilliant, fascinating people who gave a lot of their time to help this season be as full and fascinating as it was. I could not have done it without them. They are Steve Corfidi, Laura Albritton, Josh Liller, and the people of the Florida Lighthouse Association, the folks over at the Motorsports Hall of Fame, including Gary Chapels and Dave Sace, Dr. Stephen Leatherman, aka Dr. Beach, Brad Bertelli, Cinnamon Dixon, and John Burbridge. Thank you to all of them for their assistance. They are wonderful people. I recommend you go check out their episodes and go check out more of their work. They are all brilliant, wonderful folks. All of the music used in this episode was originally composed. Now, I have been saying that all season, if you have noticed. That is because I created a couple of these songs so that our show could have some fresh, original songs in the background of the episodes. If you like these songs, and I hope you do, I'm really proud of them, and I think that they do a great job in capturing the tone of this show. But if you like them, and perhaps want to own some of them and have copies of them for yourself without me blabbering over top of them, I'm hoping to do a charity drive with them in the next couple of months. So if you have been wondering about the music, and maybe you haven't, and that's okay, but if you have, there is going to be a charity drive using that music very, very soon. I will give you more information about it in the next couple of months. Speaking of the next couple of months, I'm going to take a month off. That is because there is a big, big season on the horizon. Starting in mid-October, I'm going to do kind of a new thing. Usually our seasons are connected by a broader theme. Sometimes that's an idea like summer. At the beginning of this year, the season was dedicated to buildings. And before that, we did seasons about hope and change and things like that. But This season upcoming, season eight, I wanted to talk about a topic that is very important to me, a topic that is very important to all Floridians, and that is conservation, animals and plants and ecosystems that need our protection. Now, we talk about nature a lot on this show, but this is, of course, a history and culture show. But don't worry, there is a blend of all of those things in the couple of stories that I've prepared for you. Stories about history and nature and culture and the way that they blend together current issues, past issues, even stories from outside the state. I have been very, very lucky to get to speak to some incredible people over the last couple of weeks. I cannot wait for you to hear them. Frankly, the reason that this upcoming season is going to be a conservation season at all is because these people that I have interviewed are so fascinating and wonderful that I was like, I have to get as many of them into a season as humanly possible. It's going to be such a fun season. So you'll be hearing from me in the next couple of weeks about what that's going to look like. It's going to be from October until the end of the year which will of course include the second annual Wait 5 Minutes holiday special, but we will cross that bridge when we come to it. And of course, there's going to be a Halloween episode. I'm very excited about that one. All right, people, that's it. That's the end of season seven. That's the end of summer too. At least it feels like it. I've already started watching my Halloween movies. I will see you in mid-October. Thank you so much for listening to this season. Thank you so much for listening to this extra long episode of the show. I will see you in a few weeks. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Please, get vaccinated. We need you now more than ever. And of course, drink more water. I'll see you in a month or so. Take care of yourself.